we are thrilled to welcome back our good friend, the founder and CEO of International Justice Mission, Gary Haugen. He is a former human rights attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice and a leader in the global anti-slavery movement. Under his leadership, IJM serves thousands of victims globally, partnering with law enforcement, bringing criminals to justice, and restoring hope for survivors. He is the author of three books, and his work has been featured in Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, and Forbes magazine. Haugen is the recipient of numerous awards and has received the highest honor given for anti-slavery leadership from the U.S. State Department. Let's welcome back our good friend, Gary Haugen, to the summit. All the finest leadership training in the world can be completely rendered useless by fear. And Jesus gets this, which is why on his last night with his disciples, he offers the one command that he has offered to them more than any other, and it's just very simply, do not be afraid. In fact, throughout the Gospels, this is the command more than any other that he declares, do not be afraid. Because he knows that fear is the most powerful force that stands between them actually doing what they've learned. And from what I have witnessed, nothing undermines the power and blessing of a gifted talented, equipped, promising leader like fear. But why is fear the fundamental challenge? Because fear is the silent destroyer of dreams. All great leadership flows first from great dreams. In fact, the most iconic image of leadership in, in American history is about a dream. It's the picture of this Baptist preacher who's just barely 34 years old. Think of this. And he's been thrust into leadership of this violent and brutal civil rights struggle. And now he's standing up in front of a quarter million people with millions of other people leaning in, watching on their television. And he's standing, yes, as the last speaker after a long day of speeches. What in such a moment does a leader offer? Well, I can tell you the one thing that Martin Luther King Jr. was not going to offer on that day, and that was a dream. He had been up since 4.30 in the morning, up until 4.30 in the morning, anxiously trying to finalize the text of the most important speech of his life, trying to reconcile all the policy points that his advisors wanted to make sure were in the speech. And the next day, when King actually got up to the podium to deliver that speech, there was not a single mention of a dream in the speech. Dutifully, King began to read through his prepared text but there was a moment where he started to stumble over a bit of an awkward piece in the text. And a friend behind him yells out, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And the people sitting behind King, behind the podium, saw him pause, 
set the text aside, grab hold of the podium with both hands, lean into the moment, and roll out his dream for his people and his nation without a note upon the paper. And history has never been the same. Leadership begins with a dream. And so it has been over these last two days, I hope you have sensed the way in which you've been given permission to dream. And you've been piled high with every leadership inspiration and toolkit and eight-point plan that you would ever need to be able to actually passionately pursue and lead that dream. And now, as we go out these doors, what I just promise you is that it will be the power of lurking fear that renders it all useless and begins to destroy the dream. Now, why is that? Because fear is the destroyer of the love that inspires the dream and replaces it with a preoccupation with self. Our most powerful dreams, they flow from love. We care deeply about something and we know what could be. But then we step into this fallen and uncertain world and the fear starts to rise. What if this doesn't actually work? What if I try this and it fails and then everybody blames me? In my organization, International Justice Mission, we have a dream about protecting the poor from violence. And it flows out of a very simple love for very poor people who we know by name, who are being enslaved, beaten, raped, robbed, imprisoned. And we just want the violence to stop. And over the last 20 years, we have seen more than 40,000 individual people rescued from the hands of brutal criminals who are trying to hurt them and millions more who are never going to have to suffer that kind of abuse. But I can tell you this. Every day fear goes to work trying to destroy the dream because, of course, violence fights back. In fact, last summer in Kenya... Our local teams were trying to protect this one, one poor taxi driver named Josephat, who was being brutally abused by a local police gang, but he wouldn't give in to their extortion and they had already almost killed him. And so our local IJM team were seeking to defend him and our local IJM lawyer, Willie Kamani, had taken on his case and was trying to get these police properly prosecuted. And then last June, after one of the court hearings against these police officers, Willie, Josephat, and our driver Joseph suddenly disappeared. And 10 days later at 3.30 in the morning, I get the phone call that they've found the bodies. That all three had been brutally tortured and murdered, their bodies stuffed into plastic bags and thrown into the river. Now I ask you, what do you think that does 
to your dream about protecting the poor from violence. Fear goes to work. It begins to undermine the love that you had to try to protect Joseph and others from that kind of abuse and replaces it with now a preoccupation with self. And the urgent question becomes, well, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us? Now, surely this is a very severe example, but it serves to illustrate the way in which fear has this devastating effect on the love that undergirds our dreams. But truth be told, I have seen far more dreams destroyed by a leader's everyday anxieties and insecurities than these kinds of dramatic fears about violence because it's these everyday insecurities that are just right inside of us that lead us to abandon our dreams without even putting up a fight. So you're saying, okay, Gary, I got it. We need to be fearless. This is another speech on courage. I've heard that speech. I've given that speech, Gary. I'm on it. Let's go. Well, if I may, let's just take a moment together to speak a little bit about why this is going to be hard. First, you and I are not actually likely to know what scares us most, most deeply. I almost never started IJM 20 years ago because of fear. But not because of the obvious and noble risks. I wasn't really scared of the violence of the work. I really wasn't that scared about abandoning my career at the Department of Justice to join a not-for-profit that didn't actually exist. I wasn't really that scared about taking care of my wife and kids. These were actually all the obvious and respectable risks, right? But when I slowed everything down and I actually got quiet within my own soul, I found that there was actually something else that I was scared of. And that was being a failure. Actually more, it was looking like a failure to others. I was, tr- I was afraid of trying something really hairy and audacious, right? Full of wild ideals and yes, a dream. And then turning out to be a public and total failure. It was that picture of looking like a loser to other people that became almost just unbearable for me. But once I exposed the real fear, at least I knew what I was up against. And then I could ask, well, is that the fear that I want to let kill my dream? And I could say, no. No, I don't. And the dream won. But if I had taken up the facade of the respectable fears that my false self was offering me, then I'm pretty sure the dream would have died. And I actually would have been applauded by everybody for being prudent and responsible. And tens of thousands of the world's poorest would go off to just die in the silence of violence. Being brave is going to be hard. Being brave is going to be hard. 
Because amidst the busyness and noise of our leadership lives, we are unlikely to know what we are really afraid of. So here is suggestion number one, if you want these dreams to actually survive out there, you must relentlessly inventory your own fears. You must arrange your life so that on a routine basis, you can find the stillness of the interior to ask honestly, what am I really afraid of here? In this difficult situation, what am I really anxious about? Without this kind of rigorous self-examination, I'll tell you what it is that happens. Leaders find themselves driven not by their conscious, hopeful dreams, but by their unexamined fears. And then, here's the party, the whole team, the whole ministry, whole workplaces and nations get to be led by the leader's insecurities and fears. So how important do I think this kind of interior examination is? Well, at IJM, Every day, everybody gets paid to do nothing but sit still for half an hour in silence to have a look with God at what in the world is going on inside. Every day for half an hour. It's called 8.30 stillness. Everybody gets to work at 8.30 and everybody gets paid for 30 minutes of freedom from conversation, email, meetings, or work of any kind to simply and prayerfully prepare their interior in stillness with God. Now, what happens? Well, I invite you to try it. Sit still by yourself in silence for, let's say, three minutes. And what will happen? I suggest that immediately what bubbles to the surface will start to be some worry, some anxiety, some insecurity which is 90% of the reason why 99% of us don't like to do this. But if you are practiced at it, and if you are attentive to God in it, can you imagine the strength of insight, the depth of self-awareness, the steadiness of soul that emerges for leadership every working day? It's a chance for a leader to step back and ask, hey, is God in a panic about how this dream is going to get worked out? Is he freaked out about how all this is going to get done? Or perhaps he has a path, perhaps a way of peace so that I don't need to be afraid. I can tell you after nearly 20 years of leading perhaps one of the most dangerous Christian ministries in the world that he offers a way. He offers a path, a way of struggle and risk, but always a, a way of hope and peace and love with joy. You can lead every day like that on the strength of a regular and routine inventory of your own fears in the presence of a loving and almighty God. Here's my second suggestion for how your dream can survive out there. Switch from playing defense to playing offense. 
No great dream of love has ever been built on the fear of what might go wrong. It's always built on the great and abundant hope of what might go right. So let me ask you this. Today and in this era, at your core, are you more impressed with what human beings are getting wrong in the world or more impressed with what God is making right? Fundamentally, if we are more impressed with bad men than we are with a good God, then fear is going to eat our leadership alive. Honestly, I see so many leaders today churning up this narrative of fear in this changing and tumultuous world that they now seem to see that their job is to protect their team and their territory from this onslaught of enemies and and loss. They are totally playing defense. And you cannot lead forward in the pursuit of a great dream of love while you're leading a retreat to a bunker of safety. It will not work. It reminds me of my, when my kids were really little and they were learning how to play soccer for the first time. And I remember those first games because they're always the same because it's just this big mob of kids all around their own goal. And they're just trying so hard to make sure the ball never gets into their goal. And they're really nervous not to get bumped and they, and they don't want to make any mistakes and no one's having any fun at all except for the one kid who's got this game figured out. That the, that the joy is not in keeping the ball out of your goal, it's putting the ball in their goal. And he'll just run down the field and just one time after another just bang away at goal shots. Now, they don't always go in, but he is having the time of his life playing offense. Here's the point. God is inviting his people and brothers and sisters, his leaders, to stop living in the joy-killing fear of playing defense in the world and to join him in actually playing offense. God is building his kingdom in the earth. And Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But so many Christian leaders have got themselves so disoriented in a narrative of fear and victimization that they act as if the gates of hell are advancing against them. But here's the thing about gates. They don't move around taking territory. Gates were built to keep advancing forces out. And what Jesus describes is that hell is what is desperately playing defense in the world. And that against the advance of God's kingdom, the gates of hell cannot prevail. As the leader of IJM, as the former prosecutor of brutal police abuse here in the United States, as the former director of the UN's genocide investigation in Rwanda, I think I know with some intimacy that evil and loss is real in the world and that defeats are bitter. 
But Jesus, on the night before the defeat, the evil, the loss of the cross, what does he say to his disciples? Take courage. In the world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us as leaders? It means switch from playing defense to playing offense. And this is to accept God's invitation to charge the darkness, to affirmatively advance into what is broken, into what is hurting, and what is wrong in the world, and to bring his healing and justice and redemption. Let me give you one little example of this. One of the most intimidating clouds of darkness that has descended upon our earth in this era is modern day slavery. There are just millions of the poorest in our world who are held illegally in brick factories, in rock quarries, on fishing boats, and plantations around the world. Most people don't know this, but there are nearly 46 million people held in slavery in our world today, more than in any other time in human history. And perhaps the darkest part of this is the horrible part of slavery that is child sex trafficking. It's literally a global business of child rape for profit. And over 15 years ago, ground zero for this was in the traumatized nation of Cambodia, where I could go walk the streets outside in the slums outside Phnom Penh, And I could literally find hundreds of children on open sale to foreign pedophiles and sex tours, including a dozen kids I found in the back room of a brothel between the ages of five and 10 years of age. This is violent and unspeakably ugly stuff. And so how should the people of God respond? Should we avert our eyes from the obscenity and sort of race back to our gated compounds and protect our own children? We could do that. It's totally an option. But what did the Christians in Cambodia do? They joined with IJM and local authorities and they just began to go to work rescuing hundreds of these children from child sex trafficking. And they sent scores and scores of child sex traffickers to jail. And then when they found out that there really wasn't good facilities to be able to bring these children to restoration and proper care, churches from all around the world joined Cambodian Christians to make sure that there would be facilities where these children could be loved and well cared for that now set the standard for child aftercare around the world. And when I spoke at this summit a decade ago, Cambodia was the darkest example of the evils of child sex trafficking. But now outside experts have documented the collapse of child sex trafficking in that country. And the cover story, look at, this, look at this cover story of Christianity today. It's not about darkness. It's about sunshine in the streets of Cambodia with the headline, a thriving church and a crumbling sex trafficking industry. This is the people of God playing offense in the world. If you want to be involved in this miraculous fight against slavery in the world, I would just have you write down two words. Freedom Sunday. Freedom 
Sunday. And just keep your eyes and ears open over the coming weeks and months for an invitation for your church to grow a mass movement of churches who are finding their unique role in this fight against slavery. But I will say this, that the fight against slavery is just an example of what it means for God's people to accept God's invitation to switch from playing defense to playing offense in the world and to charge the darkness. Finally, let me say this. Successful leaders of great dreams not only inventory their own fears, they not only switch from playing defense to playing offense, they do one more decisive thing. They forge a community of courage around them. Lone Rangers do not make great dreams come true ever. Lone Rangers make great movies. Actually kind of bad movies, but in any case, they're movies and they're not real. And if you want to be in a great movie with an awesome soundtrack, you're at the wrong event. Because this Leadership Summit is about doing things that matter, that are real in the world. Think about this, that Jesus was God Almighty. And if anyone was entitled to pursue a lone ranger vision, it would have been Jesus Christ. But what did he decide to do? He gathered around himself a band of men and women and forged a community of courage. He poured into them, invested into them for years. And then on his last night with them, he calls them to courage. Do not be afraid, he says. But what's his strategy for securing that courage in the fight? It's forging a community. It's the power of a team humbly serving each other. The master, the great teacher, gets down on the floor and washes the dirty, nasty feet of his teammates. And he simply says, love each other as I have loved you. That's it. Because you can imagine his disciples are like, whoa, but Jesus, you're leaving. And like you're handing us, you know, the mission, like to carry on, like where's the strategy? Like where's the brand book? Where's the, where's the you know, the playbook? Like where's all the stuff? And he's like, no. Don't be afraid. And secure your courage by the humble service with which you care for one another. And Jesus is saying, I'm good. Do that and I'm good. In pursuit of a great and difficult dream, strategy, planning, alignment, execution, resources, these are all totally critical, but they will be totally undone if leaders are afraid. And what was the one thing that will protect the team from fear over time? 
It's the strength of an authentic, loving community that members of that team experience together. You know, when I was awakened at 3.30 in the morning with the call that three of our number had been murdered by these brutal police in Kenya, I immediately knew that this whole dream of trying to protect the poor from violence would be ferociously assaulted by fear. And the next morning as my wife and kids gently drove me to the airport and I got on that plane and I sat in my window seat and I just sort of stared out on the arc of the earth's horizon on this long trip to join the team there in the field in Kenya. I knew that our survival against the onslaught of fear would depend upon one thing. How well were we loving each other? A murderous police gang had formally declared war against us because we were saying enough is enough to their abuse against the poor. And now they had come for us. And so how were we going to respond? Would we scatter with fear? Believe me, no one would blame us if we did, right? Would we dissolve into frightened infighting and blame and denial? Or maybe we would just quietly abandon the dream and take on a more, a more realistic program? No. What I found when I arrived and joined the team was something different. I found a team holding each other tight through the grief, holding each other a team staring down their own honest fears and choosing to trust God and to trust each other. A team rigorously retracing their steps, asking the hard questions, counting the cost, but in the end, recovering the joy and recovering the strength of each other. And in the end, they have all chosen to double down on the fight. Not a single team member has walked away. In fact, we've grown by 20%. Kill us and we will grow by 20%. It turns out that courage, like fear, is contagious. Five of the murder suspects have been arrested and are being properly prosecuted. And I will tell you this, the most significant effort to finally bring an end to police abuse in Kenya has been launched in that nation and it's not going to stop. And why is that? Because the leaders forged a community of courage not Lone Rangers. And when I finally touched down from my flight to Kenya and immediately joined the IJM team in the overflow crowd at the memorial service for the three martyred friends, the whole nation stood still for a moment as the memorial service would broadcast live across the country. 
And in those dark pews, the grief of the families and of the nation was open and raw. At the end of the service, as I was walking out, I could just feel within myself sort of the weight of the uncertainty of the struggle and my own accumulating unsteadiness and weakness within. I could just feel it. But as I was walking, I also felt a gentle hand reach out to touch me. And I looked up to see a familiar face, and it actually might be a face that would be familiar to some of you. Because 10 years ago, here at the summit, I shared another story out of the darkness of an extraordinary young man named David Makara. When David was just 10 years old, tragedy threw him out alone to survive on the streets of the slums in Nairobi, all by himself, but taking care of his baby brother. 10 years old. Life was hard and scary and it was a struggle. And even the little life that David was able to carve out for himself came crashing down one day when again, abusive police robbed him, shot him and left him for dead. When, my, when the IJM lawyers found him, he was chained to a hospital bed. His bullet shattered arm had been amputated and he was now facing trumped up charges from those police. I also shared that in the intervening years, my IJM colleagues were able to get him released, was able to actually help him get to school where he said one day he wanted to become a lawyer so that he could fight for those who were vulnerable and hurting the way he had been helped. It was a beautiful dream and it was a, a wonderful story. And now nearly a decade later, this was the shining face of serious courage and joy that met me at that memorial service. It was David Makara, among our very first clients in this 20-year struggle to protect the poor from police violence. And he just wanted me to know that he was well. He wanted me to know that this one-time street orphan had actually graduated from law school and that he was continuing the fight. And he looked me, he looked me straight in the eye and just said, brother, we will never stop fighting. Don't worry, we will win. You see, David is a leader forging a community of courage, and he was inviting me onto his team. Indeed, just a few days ago, the newspapers in Kenya told the story of the nation's newest lawyer, David Makara. And on the day that he was celebrating his admission to the high court with wig and robe and all, celebrating with his family and with his wife and kids and his IJM family, he took the time to write me a note. He said this, brother, listen to this. Brother, may we always remember that we are nothing but servants in the battlefield. The real soldier is Christ himself. 
The real soldier is Christ himself. As a leader, you have a dream in your heart. A dream of love. A dream of what might be so much better. Deep within you, past all the distractions and the noise, you have a yearning of great goodness. You have a love of irrepressible, transforming power that comes from the God who made you. That's why the make or break truth to hold on to is this. That the real soldier in the fight for all goodness and all love in the world is God himself. And if we can hold on to that truth outside those doors, that is what will finally allow us to lead without fear. Now, five years after Martin Luther King Jr. gave that I have a dream speech, he found himself standing again before his followers for the last time, but he didn't know it was the last time because the next morning he was going to be cut down by an assassin. But he had been receiving constant death threats, and so he clearly had a sense that his time was limited as he was for the last time in front of his followers at a church in Memphis. And what did he want them to know? In another iconic moment of leadership, he wanted them to know that God had allowed him to go to the mountaintop and to see that the dream was secure and that fear had no power. I'm so happy tonight, King said on the night before he died. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Friends, you have been given everything you need to lead this dream that you have been given, this struggle that God has placed in your heart. What glorious good might God do in you and through your leadership if you were to so trust him as to lead without fear? What dream of love might come true because your trust in him drives out every petty fear because you are transfixed by a vision of the certainty of the glory of the coming of the Lord. So now, Take up the dream. Lead without fear out there to the glory of God and the transformation of his world. Amen.